Good morning. Please be opening your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. I'll be moving around a little more this morning than usual, so keep the Bibles handy. We're now halfway through the parabolic discourse. Before we get into our text today, let's again define the term parable. A uh, parable is a it's a compound word, parabole. It means bale means to throw or lay aside, and para means alongside of. So, to throw or place alongside of life, just a story that kind of illustrates truths in your everyday life. That it's the the idea of taking a relatable story that's told in a way to illustrate a truth or a principle or a reality. That which is well known is laid aside that which is not known or understood in order to better explain it. The best thing about parables is that they're memorable. Some of the most memorable portions of Scripture are in the entire Bible are parables, wouldn't you say? Uh, The parable of the Good Samaritan, the prodigal son, the lost sheep, the parable of the sower. They aren't just known in Christian communities. They're even known among non-Christians or even anti-Christians in our society. If you pay attention, you'll even notice mentions of these biblical stories in pop culture, in movies, in TV shows, or in popular songs. But the worst thing about parables is that they, the meaning isn't always clear. An unexplained parable, read apart from the context, is easily misunderstood. And here at the midpoint of the parabolic discourse, we come to two verses that provide a transition from Jesus' speaking parables to the crowd, which he speaks from a boat just out on the open air in 13, 2 through 33, to his parables that he spoke to his disciples in the house. From out in public, in the, in the public square with no explanation, to inside the house in intimate confines where he makes sure they understand what he's teaching. Moving into this private setting, Jesus turned from those for, for, for whom the most part they did not, or better said, they would not believe him. They, wouldn't, they refused to understand. And far from just being a description of what did happen, this distinction was by design. Remember in, in 13, 10, and 11, just a few verses back, that the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered and said to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Guys, we can never forget that we are Christians because of God's grace. Yeah. To us it has been granted is a great and wonderful thing. We're better than no one. We're smarter than no one. We're not more righteous than anyone. God's revealed the truth to us out of His grace. To you it's been granted to know the mysteries, but to them it's not been granted. In our first sermon in this series, we considered many of the reasons why that Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and we're going to briefly revisit those again today. But we're going to add another reason to those already stated reasons and give more consideration to the wisdom and the providence of God in the great plan of redemption. So let's look at Matthew 13, 34 through 35. It says, All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables. And he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill that which was spoken through the prophet. I'll open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. We're going to consider here the unexplained parables, fulfilled prophecy, and uh, handle an apparent problem. That's where we're headed this morning. So let's look at these unexplained parables in verse 34, that all these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. And we need to point out that all these things speaks only of the teachings in the parabolic discord itself to this particular crowd. It's not that Jesus only spoke in parables anytime there was a crowd present, ever. That's not what's going on. Uh, we... We know that. How how do we know? It's not saying that Jesus only taught the crowds using parables exclusively because we've already read, haven't we? That he taught the crowds the law in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that? This is the second discourse in the book of Matthew that was delivered to the masses. And seeing the multitudes, remember that? He went up into a mountain and when he was beset, his disciples came unto him and he opened his mouth and he taught all of the crowds saying, and he went through... um, there's a few, even though there's a few parabolic illustrations given in the Sermon on the Mount, for the most part, the Sermon on the Mount was an exposition of the law of God. 
where Jesus labored to show how that the scribes and the Pharisees had twisted the law and how that when richly applied, all men everywhere would come short of the righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember when he says that, I say unto you, except your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Guys, that's not a parable, is it? That's didactic teaching. Straight, just plain talk. Indeed, the bar is set extremely high. If any of us wants to get into the kingdom of God by our works, he goes on to say, therefore, you who want to be... Uh, Therefore, you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. He's giving them a bar, a standard of teachings directly from the law of God. The entire Sermon on the Mount was designed to strip men of their self-righteousness and, and produce men that are fit for the kingdom of heaven. And you want to know what that looks like. It looks like people who are poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's how the, par the Sermon on the Mount begins. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those that know they don't deserve the kingdom of heaven are the ones that the kingdom of heaven actually belongs to. So the whole, the whole, my whole point here is that the Sermon on the Mount is very direct. It's very easy to understand. It's not stories. It's just plain talk meant to cut straight to your heart and to show you that you're guilty in the sight of God. I get carried away on that point, but let, let's rein it back in and say that the Sermon on the Mount shows that Jesus did sometimes teach the crowds in forms other than parables. He also taught the crowds using reason and logic at times. When rebuking the Pharisees in Matthew 12, 22-30, it tells us that the crowds were present. When Jesus showed the absurdity of the Pharisees' accusation that Jesus, remember, he cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul. Remember how that moronic accusation, as we called it when we were preaching through that portion. There, there Jesus shows that the accusation is illogical in Matthew 12. Look, look with me, Matthew 12. It's just a page back. 12, 25, and 26. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? That's not a parable, is it? Not without at least one, not one without an explanation. So he's wanting to make sure they understand that he want, he also points out that the Pharisees are inconsistent in verse twenty seven. If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. There, Jesus is saying, your sons, these Jewish exorcists, they do indeed show limited power and influence over the demonic realm, and you all call that the great power of God on display. The idea here is that if the, if their disciples can perform little exorcisms and no one doubts that it's of God, then when Jesus performs his super exorcisms, how can they deny that it's the great power of God? The only conclusion would be that God has less authority and influence over Satan than... I mean, that Satan has more influence over his kingdom than... God does. And of course, that would be heretical, wouldn't it? It's impossible to say that God has more power and authority. I mean, that Satan has more power and authority than God does. Then lastly, the miracle's true implications, they're plainly stated. He says, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God, verses 28 through 30, has come upon you. He says it very plainly there, that me casting out demons is a clear indication that the kingdom of God is upon you. How can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. So here we again we see Jesus teaching didactically without parables. But what's changed? Why does Jesus stop teaching directly to them and start leaving and teaching in these veiled truths, these stories, without explanation? And the answer to that is because the crowds refused to understand and repent. That's been a common theme that we've seen uh, since the narrative section began after the missionary discourse. Remember when Jesus complained that they rejected both him and John the Baptist, he says, but what shall I compare this generation to? It's like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to the other children and say, we played the flute for you, but you wouldn't dance. We sang a dirge, but you would not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They refused to listen to John, who was speaking to them the very words of God. They refused to listen to Jesus, who was speaking the words of God. He said, you just refuse to hear truth. I want to warn you of something. If you refuse to hear truth, God will stop giving it to you. 
When you walk away, recognize what you're doing. When you harden your heart, recognize what you're doing. You're resisting God Himself, the grace of God itself. You are resisting it. You're pushing it away. Jesus denounced the unrepentant cities of that day in 11, 20 through 24. He began to denounce the cities where most of His miracles were done because they did not repent. Where He said, Woe to you, Horazim. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in dust and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, O Capernaum, you will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend into Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. That the more revelation you have, the more truth you've been exposed to, the more indictable you are, the more condemnation you have. And in some ways, it's a grace that God stops giving you more. You're already going to be damned. He don't want you damned words. You've showed yourself hard-hearted. And He stops revealing Himself to you. Hardens you in your sins. Turns you over to a reprobate mind. And even after Jesus performed more miracles, they refused to believe. In chapter 12, Jesus publicly healed the man with a withered hand. Remember that? And the Pharisees responded by conspiring to destroy Jesus. Jesus heals somebody, and they want to destroy Him for it. But the crowds followed with Jesus healing them all in verse 12, 15. Then Jesus, get this, he heals a demon-possessed blind mute. What a sad case that is, right? This man was complete, comprehensively broken. Spiritually speaking, he was demon-possessed. Physically speaking, he was blind. Mentally, he was so out of his mind, that seems to be the case, that he's so out of his mind that he can't even talk. This healing demonstrated Jesus' dominion over the spiritual world of demons, the physical world of disease, even your mind itself. He undeniably possessed the power to heal every kind of disease, to cast out any kind of and any number of demons, and even to restore life to the dead. He's performed thousands of instantaneous, total, permanent, and verifiable healings. His supernatural powers could no longer be questioned, either by the common multitudes or by the more educated and skeptical religious leaders. So how do you think the onlookers responded to that miracle? Look at verse 12, chapter 12, verse 23. It says, All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This cannot be the son of David, can he? Before you get too impressed, think about this. That ain't near as good a response as you might think it is. Sure, they went a step farther than they had gone earlier. In chapter, in ver, chapter 9, verse 33, when a demon-possessed mute was healed, they said nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Now they go a step farther. This is the sp first time they ever consider the possibility that it might be the son of David himself, that the Messiah might have uh, shown up. But in their astonishment, while they're knocked out of their senses, while they're out of their minds with amazements, they floated the possibility that this Nazarene, this carpenter's son, this gentle do-gooder might be the Messiah. But notice how they threw it out. They threw it out as an outlandish idea. This couldn't be the son of David, could it? It begins by assuming that the question itself is preposterous. But how else can it be explained is what they're saying. Like, that, that, this guy can't be the Messiah. How are we supposed to understand this? Because that can't be it. As silly as it said, could this Nazarene, this carpenter's son, this gentle do-gooder be the Messiah? John MacArthur says it this way. He says, they knew that miracles would be proof signs of the Messiah. But they also expected him to come with royal fanfare and with military might. But, in, but instead of regal robes, sovereign authority, a throne, trumpets, swords, horses, chariots, and a mighty army, they saw a man of compassion, gentleness, and humility with a following of 12 non-impressive disciples and a multitude of hangers-on whose loyalty could hardly be counted on. But Jesus didn't appear to be a conqueror or a king by their definition. The people wouldn't accept His being the Messiah. They had chosen to be selective about their Old Testament predictions of the Messiah. His, pred his predicted coming in power and glory to defeat the foes of Israel and set His people free was easy for them to be excited about. But His predicted coming in meekness and Humility was not. So this couldn't be the Messiah, could it? I don't understand what's going on, but it can't be that. It can't be that this is really the Messiah. 
The Pharisees responded to that miraculous healing of the demon-possessed blind mute even worse. They accused him of doing what he did by the power of Beelzebul. They even request, they even have the gall a little bit later to request a sign. He's, how many signs has he given? Look at all the things he's done. And then they say, we would have a sign from you. It seems that the crowds are being won over more than the Pharisees, more by the, poor, the Pharisees' poor arguments than by Jesus' good ones. That, that after all of this, Jesus then denounces the entire generation. Jesus makes good arguments, the Pharisees make bad ones, but they believe the Pharisees instead of believing Jesus, culminating in him saying, the men of Nineveh, Chapter 12, verse 41 through 42. will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. They are rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. And that, now back to our text. You're like, I thought you were preaching Matthew 13. Hey, leave me alone. I get to preach what I want to. Right? But that's why. My whole point here is that's why he teaches them about the kingdom only in parables. That's why. Remember, these parables are kingdom parables. With the exception of the parable of the sower, they all begin something like the kingdom of heaven is like. They've rejected him as the king of the kingdom. They don't want him as king, so now he's going to speak to them in veiled language. You don't want me as your king? You don't understand the kingdom is coming in my person? Well, I'm not going to explain it to you or give you any clarifications. I'm going to give you these little stories and you can do with them what you want. And that's what's happening. Even in the parable of the sower, we learn that in the explanation that it's about the kingdom of heaven too. Hear the parable of the sower, verse 13, 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, it's all about the kingdom of God. In, that light, the con- in, in, in light of that context, it's easy to understand why Jesus only taught about the kingdom of heaven in parables. Look at verse 13, 10 through 15. The disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered, To you it's been granted to know the mystery of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he does have, shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables. Why? Because while seeing, they do not see. While hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says you will keep on hearing and will not understand. Notice that, you will not understand, not cannot. You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has grown dull. The Hebrew word here actually was, it's grown fat. Basically, they feel like they've got enough. They're not hungering and thirsting after righteousness because they think they're good enough. They don't need anything extra from Jesus. Their heart is fat. With their ears, scarcely they hear. They've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and return. I would heal them. So this is the second explanation concerning why Jesus taught these crowds exclusively by unexplained parables. The first explanation was uh, in the narrative where we saw Jesus answering the disciples' question. The reason is given entirely as an... Uh, uh, this reason, though, is given entirely as an editorial comment, not as the words of Jesus. All these things, the truth of the kingdom, Matthew says, Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a... Parable, and now we see another reason why. Verses 10 through 15 focus on the immediate reason, their own obstinance. But verse 35, it points to this more providential reason of fulfilled prophecy. Look at verse 35. This was to fulfill that which was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. This marks the eighth of ten times that Matthew says something like this was to fulfill. Matthew wrote the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, in order to try to persuade unbelieving Jews at that time that Jesus really was the, the promised Messiah. Everything that the Old Testament was writing about, here's the eighth time he said this was to fulfill. Now, Skeptic McSkeptic wants to try and challenge God's word again like he tried with the parable of the mustard seed and the mustard plant. Mr. McSkeptic here, he wants to point out that this is not from one of the prophetic books that this quote comes. 
read these commentators saying, well, Matthew just got his facts wrong. Guys, Matthew didn't get his facts wrong. Matthew spoke under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He didn't get his facts wrong. They want to point out this comes from Psalm 78. So it's not one of the prophets. It says it came from one of the prophets. This is a Psalm of Asaph. He'll also want to point out that this writing was not a prophecy per se, just an introduction to Asaph's own teaching about Israel's history. You know what we need to do when the skeptic comes with his skepticism? We need to answer him. We've got to know how to answer the fool. We can't just say, we can't just ignore him. We need to have answers, don't we? Asaph was a prophet or a seer. Did you know that's not just my opinion or something that I'm asserting without basis? Matthew can base his designation of that title of prophet on Asaph by appealing to the scriptures themselves. First Chronicles 25.2 says, The sons of Asaph were under the direction of Asaph who prophesied under the direction of the king. It also says in 2 Chronicles 29.30, King Hezekiah and the officials ordered the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. Seer is what? It's a synonym for a prophet. So Asaph was a prophet. It wasn't in one of the books that was one of the prophetic books, but it was written in the Psalms by a man who the Scriptures themselves call a prophet. So there's one way to answer it, but there's actually more than one. The apostles considered the entire Old Testament to be prophetic. Guys, if the, if the apostles considered the entire Old Testament to be prophetic, you know how we should consider the entire Old Testament? If they saw it as all prophetic, we should see it as all prophetic because they were the apostles. And that's where it says that it was written on the, on the foundation of, the, of Christ and of the apostles. We should follow their lead, shouldn't we? For Matthew, it wasn't just the writings of the prophets that were prophetic, but even the law. Do you remember in Matthew 11, 13 through 14, he says, For all the law and the prophets prophesied until John. What prophesied? Well, the prophets did, but what else? The law even prophesied. And it prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who is to come. So Elijah himself is a prophetic image of John the Baptist who was the forerunner of Christ. Matthew presents Jesus as the greater Moses, the great lawgiver, the fulfillment of the law, the greater son of God who was called out of Egypt. Remember he says it was written that it might be fulfilled out of Egypt I have called my son. In the Old Testament it was talking about Israel coming out of Egypt by the mighty hand and deliverance of God. But Jesus as a little baby ended up going to Egypt and he came out and in a greater way Jesus the greater son was brought out of Egypt. That wasn't a prophecy either, except that it was. Because it's all prophecy. It's all pointing forward to fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus was the final prophet whose way was prepared by a forerunner like Elijah was for Elisha but only in a much greater sense. Elisha had a double portion of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist came in the power of the Holy Spirit prepared the way for Jesus who was the greater prophet just like with Elijah. For Matthew, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and he would rightly, and, and he would rightly say that if we read the Old Testament and we do not see Christ in its pages then we're reading it all wrong. You know why the Old Testament's so boring for you to read? You're not looking for Jesus in it. You're just saying, what in the world does this matter without the, the key? And the key is putting on your Jesus goggles and seeing that Christ is on every page of the entire Bible. That's right. Yes. He's all of it. That's the reason Matthew points out in 5.17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish or destroy, but to fulfill. He's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. The whole Old Testament comes from God and is thus prophetic. Matthew is not, only the New, is not the only New Testament writer to understand the Old Testament that way either. Luke 24, 25-27, After Jesus had risen from the dead, he, reads, he meets with the men on the road to Emmaus, and he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. It's all about Jesus, guys. All of it. 
And also we need to realize that when we read prophecy, we read it with a 20th century understanding of what the Word means. And the, the Word doesn't even mean predicting the future when we see it in the Scriptures. It's not about... Sometimes prophecy does predict the future, but sometimes it doesn't. Often it means to reveal hidden things. So when the Bible says prophesy, it can be the direct fulfillment of a prediction, but it can be the repeating of patterns, of types, of shadows, of declarations, which together look forward to Him who fulfills them. Matthew finds not only individual events in Jesus' life and ministry to be the fulfillment of prophecy, but he even now says that the parabolic teaching method itself was a fulfillment of prophecy. John Calvin says it this way. He says, Matthew doesn't mean that the psalm is a prediction which relates peculiarity to Christ, but that as the majesty of the Spirit was displayed in the discourse of the prophet, in the same manner was his power manifested in the discourse of Christ. He's a fulfillment. What Asaph was doing and communicating, Jesus is now doing and communicating by the same Spirit and with the same outcome and with the same effect. That's what Matthew is getting at. In Psalm 78, Asaph is explaining the repeated patterns of the Jews in redemptive history. Jesus, by the same Spirit that enabled Asaph's ministry, is teaching his own parabolic teaching and exposing the same rebellion in the hearts of the Jews. So, it's pretty clear what drew Matthew's heart and mind to Psalm 78. Because the word Psalm 78, the word parables is used in Psalm 78 in the Septuagint. Parable obviously matches the word parable. So he says, oh wait, it mentions parables in Psalm 78. And then he reads Psalm 78 and he says, whoa, the parallels are absolutely amazing. The main point Asaph is making is a lack of ease and understanding that fits, uh, that, and that certainly fits here, That because parables in the Old Testament, you know, the word in the Hebrew isn't the word for parables, but it is difficult things to understand. Mysteries. And then he follows the, the Masoretic Hebrew with this word for uh, that he will utter things. Utter. The word for utter there is Homer uses it uh, as... Uh, the sea surging against its shore. That's the word for utter things. Pindar, another Greek writer, he uses it for the word uh, the eruption of Aetna, a, a volcano. There seems to lie in this sense a full impassioned utterance of a prophet having never been known from the beginning of the world indicates that they're not attainable by human search. But guys, before I move forward here, I want to tell you something. If you communicate the Word of God dispassionately, you're doing it wrong. If you're communicating amazing, world-shifting, world-altering truths with eternal import and you do it monotone, you're doing something wrong. If it's exciting, we should be excited about it. And if we're bored about it in our presentation, then we're communicating that what we're saying is boring by our method, so we're lying by our method, even if we're telling the truth by what we're saying. This is world-rocking, earth-shattering stuff. And I'm not saying the good preacher is the one that shouts and screams the loudest, but I'm saying you should see an animation about them, that they're moved by the very things that they're communicating. And if you've not been moved by it in your own heart, then don't get up here and try to move other people by it with your speeches. Because they're speeches, they're not sermons anyway. Preach the Word of God. Utter forth like a volcano overflowing and erupting, like a fire burning in your bones. And you say, oh, I just don't feel it like that and I don't want to put on. Pray that God lets you feel it like that because it's worthy of that kind of thing. Amen. Let it burn forth. Anyway, that's a soapbox and we'll get back to our text. <laughs> We want to look at this apparent problem because a lot of people say, well, Matthew just saw, oh, it says parable in Psalm 78. That's a fulfillment. So Matthew's making fulfillments where fulfillments don't really exist. That's one problem. That's what you know, a lot of, you know, skeptic, skeptic pants that we already mentioned earlier, he already skepticized once, he's going to skepticize again. He's going to be a skeptic all the time trying to find fault with the Word of God. You can try all day long. Every Word of God is pure. You won't find it. But we still need to answer him, don't we? I will open my mouth in parables. 
I will utter things hidden since the foundations of the earth. Is he just, since it said parables in Psalm 78, Jesus spoke in parables, is he just inventing some sort of fulfillment? And also, the Masoretic text only says, and the Hebrew it only says, I will utter dark sayings from old, but the Septuagint adds, I will utter things hidden since the foundations of the world. That's kind of a problem too. And that lead, you know, if you read from Psalm 78, 2 and 3, actually if you just opened your Bible and read there, you know, open your Bible and read there. Go to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. I will open my mouth. Here's, the, here's what Matthew says is a fulfillment. I will open my mouth in a parable. Psalm 78, 2. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. Guys, it says these are things hidden from the foundations of the earth in the Matthew version. And here it says it's things that we've known and our fathers have told us. Is that a problem? Let's be honest, it kind of looks like one, doesn't it? Anybody else think it kind of looks like a problem? We can be honest, can't we? I don't know, legend. Apparent problem. How can these things be hidden since the foundations of the world and be things which we have heard and known that were handed down to us from our fathers? Well, the things handed down were the shadows of which Jesus is the type. You got to realize that you have the whole, you, you you have the shadows in the Old Testament, and the Jews held tightly to the shadows, and they understood the shadows. They made an idol of the shadows. They basically worshipped the shadows. Christ is the substance of it. They're holding to the shadows that they've heard that should have they should have looked to where the shadows coming from, but they won't look. The fullness. God's plan before the foundation of the earth was Christ. He, un- he unveils it slowly over time throughout the Old Testament, culminating in the incarnation of Jesus Himself. Jesus comes and says, everything you were pointing to that your fathers told you about is pointing to me the whole entire time. They held the shadows and they rejected the substance. That's exactly what happened to them. They loved the shadows and rejected the type. But what are these hidden things that Jesus is now uttering? In Psalm 78, they were the righteous acts of God in redemption. That's what Psalm 78 is about. Asaph speaks about the obstinance of the Jewish people at that time. Read with me in Psalm 78, starting at verse 8 and forward. Realize, when, when Jesus quotes Psalm 78, you all might have heard Psalm 78, 2 and 3, and you might not have known where it came from. Guys, the Jews knew their Bibles better than we do, and that's an indictment on us. They knew where it came from, and they knew the whole context, and they knew what Matthew was getting at. We need to be more people of the Word and know what Jesus is getting at, what the apostles are getting at when they read something and say something. We need to know our Bibles better. Well, listen to what Asaph was saying in 78, 8 through 11. And not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation. Oh, does that sound familiar, guys? A generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. The sons of Ephraim were archers equipped with bows, yet they turned back in the day of battle. Even when they had people on their side that were equipped with bows to fight, they were cowards and they wouldn't fight. They didn't keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in His law. They forgot His deeds and the miracles that He had shown Him. What have we talked about the whole time today? Jesus doing all these deeds. Jesus doing all these miracles. Jesus showing all of these proofs and all of these evidences. And what's the response of these Jews today? It's just like the response of the Jews that Asaph's talking about, isn't it? It's just like it. Then he goes into examples, Psalm 78, 12 through 17. He wrought wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. He made the water stand up like a heap. He led them with the cloud by day and all night with the light of fire. He split the rock in the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. He brought forth streams also from the rock. He caused waters to run down like rivers, yet they still continued to sin against him. 
and to rebel against the Most High in the desert. Matthew is being an Asaph here. Matthew's saying, look at what Jesus did. He healed the leper. He healed the blind man. He healed the man with a withered hand. He healed the demon-possessed blind mute. He raised the, the dead. He healed uh, the Jairus' sick daughter. He, he could go through a list just like Asaph's going down. But in the same way that they wouldn't hear, we've got this generation of Jews being just like that generation of Jews and they will not hear regardless of what God does for them. Unless we look back with disdain and look down our noses at them, let us not become like them. Refusing to believe regardless of what God has shown us in His Word or with His faithfulness in our lives. God forbid we harden our hearts and be just like them. But that's not what this is about. It is a good place for an exhortation, isn't it? The psalmist continues to show how in spite of the display of power, patience, and love, the people by and large rejected God. And I want to let you know this. I had the whole of Psalm 78 in my notes, all 60-something verses, and I was going to read it all, and I'm not going to, and you are welcome. Read it. Amen. Verses 17 through 19, verse 32, verse 36, 37, 40 through 42, 56 through 58. By and large... They all rejected God. And all this obstinance led to God's punishment. Psalm 78, 21 through 22. Therefore the Lord heard and was full of wrath. There's the warning and there's what's coming. By the time we get to Matthew 24, we're going to see it very fully. This generation of Jews is going to be judged because the generation of Jews and Asaph, they were judged. This generation of Jews is going to be judged as well. There's a reason the temple is not standing. There's a reason Jerusalem was overthrown and sacked. Fire was kindled against Jacob and anger was mounted against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust His salvation. You're still in Psalm 78. Look at 31 through 36. The anger of God rose against them and He killed some of their stoutest ones. Guys, did you know our stoutest ones are no match for God? I don't care how big and strong you are. He killed some of their stoutest ones. He subdued their choice men of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned. They wouldn't repent because of miracles and they wouldn't even repent in the face of judgment. They did not believe in His wonderful works. So He brought their days to an end in futility and their years in sudden terror. When He killed them, then they sought Him and returned. Some of them did finally and they searched diligently for God. They remembered that God was their rock and the Most High God their Redeemer. But then, verse 36, what happens? They deceived him with their mouth and lied to him with their tongues. Just this cycle over and over again. The repentance is short-lived and right back to the sin. Right back to the apostasy. Psalm 78, 59 through 64. When God heard, he was filled with wrath again and greatly abhorred Israel so that he abandoned the dwelling at Shiloh, the tent which he had pitched among men. That symbolizes the temple, doesn't it? That tent. Dwelling place of God in the Old Testament in the tabernacle. He abandons it. Now we've got the judgment on he's going to leave their house, their temple desolate. We're going to see in chapter 23. And he gave up his strength to captivity and his glory into the hand of the adversary. He also delivered his people to the sword and was filled with wrath in, at his inheritance. Fire devoured his young men and his virgins had no wedding songs. His priests fell by the sword and his widows could not weep. In spite of Israel's rebellion, though, and God's judgment, the continuing faithfulness of God to His people was manifested in the mighty works of power over and over again. Verse 4 through 7, 12 through 16, 23 through 29, 38 and 39, 42 through 45. And in choosing David to shepherd them, there's the final place where it culminates. Asaph points to a great hope that that there's David. He gave us David. Look at verse 65 through 72. Then the Lord awoke as if from sleep, like a warrior overcome by wine. He drove his adversaries backwards. He put on them an everlasting reproach. He also rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. But he chose the tribe of Judah. He chose the tribe of Judah. Mount Zion, the dwelling place of God which he loved. Guys, what is Jesus the lion of the tribe of Judah. What is he? He came and tabernacled among us. He is our Mount Zion, the very dwelling place of God. 
But he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth which was he has founded forever. He also chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from the care of the ewes with suckling lambs. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart. He guided them with his skillful hands. But they knew that David had not ushered in an age of perfect righteousness, and Israel had not become an everlasting kingdom at that time, right? They knew the Messiah was coming. They knew that Jesus is proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom. They've seen the miraculous evidence. It's clear that Jesus is the promised son of David who fulfills the role of Israel's ultimate shepherd. Jesus' parables, like those of Asaph, portray Israel's unbelief and God's judgment. This can't be the son of David, can it? You bet you it can. It sure is. And that's exactly what... Matthew is telling them that this is a fulfillment of in Matthew 13:34 and 35. This verse contains the second fulfillment citation of the, of the Old Testament in this very discourse. Jesus shows that the unbelief of most of the Jews who saw his deeds and heard his words was not unprecedented. The pattern of unbelief that occurred in the days of Israel of Isaiah was recurring in the days of Jesus. Israel as a whole did not believe Isaiah's warning of impending invasion and neither did they believe Jesus' warning of impending invasion that was coming in 70 AD or of Jesus coming into his kingdom either. They didn't believe. Here Matthew inserts and cites Psalm 72 to echo Jesus's 78:2 to echo Jesus's point. Matthew has made it clear that the obstinate ones are them. We've seen that, haven't we? We've went over all that. The parables of the kingdom warn of coming judgment on that generation of Jews and the kingdom becoming a blessing to all nations as we've seen in the last two weeks. And speaking that, that, it, that it spreads like leaven until it fills the whole earth. That Jesus is what? He is rejecting Israel and He is initializing the church to spread and take the whole world. What do we see at the end of Matthew? All authority. How much authority? All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. He, it's not a localized religion. He's not just the God of that little place in the Middle East, guys. The whole earth and all of its fullness is Jesus Christ. That's what we're getting at. That generation of Jews were not open to a greater fulfillment. They had the law and the prophets, but they rejected their fulfillment. We've seen that in Matthew 5, 17 through 22. Their parents had told them, but it had still been hidden. hidden. It had been handed down. Remember, even all through the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said of old. It had been handed down, but I say to you, it was handed down to you, but y'all got it wrong. Over and over again. Turn with me real quickly to Matthew 15, 3 through 14. It was handed down to them, but they still got it wrong. Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Tradition took over the Word of God. For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. Guys, Jesus is pro-death penalty, just to let y'all know. If you're a true person of the book, you are too. And if you think you're against it, you should repent and conform your life to Christ. Anyway. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you is to be given to God, and he is not to honor his father or mother or take care of them in their old age. And by this, you invalidated the Word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And after Jesus called the crowd to him, he said, Hear and understand, it is not what enters into the mouth that defiles a man, but that proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when... They heard this statement. Guys, do you think Jesus didn't know that? Yeah, he knew. He just didn't care. Oh, another little tiny soapbox. I'm going to stay on it long. If you're going to be a minister of the gospel, you can't care what men think. You can't care. But he answered and said, Every plant 
This takes us back to the parable of the wheat and the tares, the one we're going to explain next week. Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant will be uprooted. Remember, the enemy comes in and he sows tares amongst the wheat. They will be uprooted. Let them alone. Who are these Pharisees? For they are blind guides of the blind. Who are the blind guides? Who are the blind guides? Well, that's the Pharisees. Who are the blind ones being guided by them? The crowds who he now refuses to teach in any way except for through the parables. Leave them alone. They're both going to fall in the pit. Leave them alone. He's letting it go its way. Their parents had told them, but it had still been hidden. They had to recognize the revealed substance of of their old shadows. Now turn back to our text. We're almost done. But turn back to Matthew 13. And at the end of this parabolic discourse... Notice this little summary and transition statements right in the middle. We've had four, now we have an explanation, and we have three more. And in these three more parables we have, it's only the disciples that are there, and he gives more explanation and makes sure they understand. But at the end, he tells them what has to happen for a scribe to become a disciple. Jesus said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and things old. What you can't, what you got to do, you can't just hold to the old, just the shadows. You've got to now bring forth the new. You've got to accept the fulfillment. It builds on the shadows, but you can't just have one. Otherwise you're rejected. Most of them couldn't though. They had and had and had they redemption would have been impossible. You know why? Because the whole Old Testament was predicated on the rejection of Jesus by his own people. We had to have a crucified Savior. <laughs> If they had heard and believed, if they hadn't been blinded, then we couldn't have been grafted in. That's what it says in Romans chapter 11. So turn now to Matthew 21, 38 through 43, where it mentions the vine growers, which is the sons of Israel. When they saw the son, they had already killed the slaves, which represented the prophets. They said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine growers? And they said, He will give them, he will give, bring those wretches to a wretched end and he will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. And Jesus said, Did you never read in the scriptures that the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, the vine growers, Israel and given to a people producing the fruit thereof. That generation is going to be judged. It was judged. It was judged in 70 AD. The temple system is no more but we have a sacrifice still and it is Christ who is the temple, who is the priest, who is the lamb, who is the fulfillment of everything this book says. And we've got it in one person and in one place. Matthew 12, 17 through 21. Like I said, we're almost done. And by that, I don't mean anything. We're almost done. Matthew 12. Another prophecy of of Isaiah... This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to who? To the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. This is when the Pharisees were conspiring to kill him. He wasn't going to stop them from killing him. He wasn't going to raise a ruckus. He wasn't going to live by the sword. He was actually going to die on a cross. And a battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out. Battered reeds were useful for a time. They were cheap and easily replaceable, but you could play music on a battered reed. Smoldering wicks, a wick gave light until it got down there and it was almost burned all the way out, and then it would begin to smolder and just put off smoke. Most of the time people would just break the battered reed and extinguish the, the wick. But Jesus like, I'm not going to do that to this useless system that's became so corrupt yet. I'm not going to do it until... He leads justice to victory. And in His name, the Gentiles will hope. Where did Jesus lead justice to victory, guys? On the cross of Christ. 
<laughs> on the cross, He led justice to victory that we... that. There, there had to be a sacrifice for sin or punishment for sin and he became both the just and the justifier to those who have faith in Jesus at the cross. And then the, then the Jews' days was numbered. They were numbered at that point. And judgment was coming. And the Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles would be gathered in. This is actually all the way through the New Testament too. I want to point it out. Very familiar text. The mystery of the gospel had been hid in God in His counsels and decrees from the beginning of the world. You remember Ephesians 3, 8 through 12? You don't have to turn here in these places, but I wanted to point them out to you because I like, I like this kind of thing, connecting the dots. To me, Paul says, the very least of the saints, His grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which, which for ages had been hidden in God who created all things. Look, he's pointing back to what we're seeing here in Matthew 13, isn't he? So that the manifold, in the manifold wisdom of God might be known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. What? That it wouldn't just be a Jewish religion that the stone that the builders rejected would become the chief cornerstone and the whole church which would encompass the whole world would take its place. That's the mystery. That's what the Jews didn't like, didn't want, and didn't understand. That's the mystery. Compare Romans 16, 25-27, you'll see it again. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of the faith. Jesus becomes Lord and brings about the obedience of faith to all the nations, not just the Jews, in this eternal, wonderful plan where the Jews reject Christ, crucify Christ. He conquers death and now Jew and Gentile alike have access to the Father through Jesus. That was the plan of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 6-8 Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. And notice every time it mentions this mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age had understood. If they had understood it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. And last one, because that horse needs to be kicked just one more time, square in the ribs. Colossians 1, 25-28. Of this church, Paul says, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed upon me for your benefit, so that I might carry out the preaching of the Word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to His saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We, procl we proclaim Him, admonishing every man. Every Jew? Nope, every man. That's what we gain here. And teaching who? Every man with all wisdom, so that we can present every man complete where? Through the law, through some temple system? No, complete in Christ. That's the mystery. Jesus fulfilled it. Guys, we should be a rejoicing people because through Jesus Christ's ministry... The rebellion of times past is done away with and He now gives us new hearts, fills us with the Holy Spirit, forgives us of our sins and makes us new creations in Christ Jesus. There was an old covenant, but it was passing away. The new has arrived. And let's rejoice in that. Kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for this text. Lord, there's so much meat in Your Scriptures. I pray that we'll benefit from it. Lord, build us up, give us strength, help us to understand, make us fearless in the face of the nations as we take this glorious gospel, knowing that we have all authority in heaven and earth, that it was your desire that that would happen and that you secured it with your death and your resurrection. Let us go in the power of the Holy Spirit and make disciples of these nations for your name's sake. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.